The following is audio from a podcast that I have on Spotify. And the topic is dealing with music and the censorship of it or free creative expression. Censorship has gone on throughout the course of time. And I started at 1955 because it was the, well, first significant time that a measure of censorship occurred in the modern age of music with certain technological advances and society that's embracing music in a different way. I hope you enjoy this presentation and I hope you get the message that I've actually tried to convey here. It wasn't to be judgmental and it wasn't at all to be accusatory. I just chose to speculate on previous experiences revolving around music and how it affects society. So I was thinking about how to approach this topic. I didn't want to end up going down a bunch of rabbit holes or anything. And of course, I just wanted to appear impartial and non-judgmental more than anything. But, you know, thinking about music today and how music has been through the years in the past and the censorship efforts up to and including, you know, recent activity associated with, well, critical race theory in, in schools. It just caused me to think, to think things over while reflecting on my own experiences associated with music, censorship as well as objectionable content. I don't know, I hope you really are able to see and understand what I'm trying to convey here in this conversation. And I look forward to uh, just hearing your thoughts on the matter. Thank you, thank you for listening. And I do plan to post more content talking about my experiences in music. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to have a few more guests on. Among the things that I would like to do is get into liner notes. Like I used to do as a child, I used to actually read over the liner notes. I used to actually read the uh, cover art, look at the cover art. I used to read the liner notes, identifying the various musicians, the instruments, and that. And I actually look forward to doing that in a future episode and more episodes to come. Thank you. Be well. necessarily sure what Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band had intended when they made that song in 1968. Did you know that in 1955, an organization called the Juvenile Delinquency and Crime Commission of Houston, Texas banned more than 30 songs it considered obscene, and that almost all the artists on the list itself were black. I'm going to have a conversation about censorship and music throughout time, and today we're going to talk about profanity in songs, novelty, or necessity. 
Does everyone, every recording artist, have to raise such objectionable content? Drill, trap music, and new era rap. That coming up on the future installment of Must Be The Music. All right, so first off, we're going to get into a song, a Chuck Berry song, that actually was uh, written by Dave Bartholomew. And the song was actually released in 1972 at a performance in London, Great Britain, and Chuck Berry had uh, performed it. Let me scroll up here just a second because I want to break this down to you. So the song was about a young boy who discovers his penis. Berry was good at making sexual references that did not seem offensive. While many rock scholars... Uh, dismiss this song and I'm, I don't consider myself a rock scholar, scholar by any stretch <laughs> uh, this song uh, they said it was a senseless novelty, novelty ditty Barry is quite proud of the song he told Rolling Stone in 2010 that he wanted to be a comedian at some point and enjoys getting a laugh now as I said it's a novelty song that was recorded by Dave Bartholomew it was covered by Chuck Berry in 72 and became his only number one Billboard Hot 100 single in the United States. Later on in that year, in a longer unedited form, it was included on the album The London Chuck Berry Sessions. And I've heard the song before. It's actually pretty cool. So to be clear, this is just a vocal presentation only. Uh, There are restrictions uh, limiting copyrighted content being played on Anchor. However, if you would go to my uh, Spotify site, you'll find uh, this whole presentation in its entirety, including all of the songs uh, that are listed and appearing in that podcast presentation. This is just a a vocal um, recap of that presentation for my Anchor podcast listeners. Thank you. So how was that, huh? A little tongue-in-cheek. It's really catchy. Yeah, the content, I can see how it could get someone in the hot waters. Let's get into Bo Diddley. And here's a bio about him, as a matter of fact. He was born in 1928, December 30th, by the name of Ellis McDaniel. He passed away on June 2nd in 2008. Known professionally as Bo Diddley, he was an American singer, guitarist, songwriter, and music producer who played a key role in the transition from blues to rock and roll. He influenced many artists, including Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Animals, George Thorogood, and The Clash. His use of African rhythms and a signature beat, a simple five-accent hambone rhythm, is a cornerstone of hip-hop, rock, and pop music. In recognition of his achievements, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987, Blues Hall of Fame in 2003, and the Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame in 2017. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Rhythm and Blues Foundation and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Diddley is also recognized for his technical innovations, including his use of tremolo and reverb effects to enhance the sound of his distinctive rectangular-shaped guitars. All right, so as it was reported, in 1955, Bo Diddley had appeared on the Ed uh, Sullivan Show, and he was asked to perform a specific song called uh, 16 Tons. Uh, He agreed, but when he took the stage, apparently he misread uh, Sullivan's cue card, which had Bo Diddley written on top, indicating his name. And apparently he had a song title of the same name. Bo Diddley, and also Hey Bo Diddley. Anyway, the bluesmen reasonably assumed that they had wanted him to perform his hit song, Bo Diddley. Sullivan got furious, said he hadn't followed his explicit instructions, and never was asked to return. The damage had already been done, 
after that very performance. So there's a lack of communication and a misunderstanding on part of uh, the performer and the showrunner. Pretty much that simple. I don't know, but it was just a misunderstanding. But by that point in time, Diddley was an international superstar. Consequently, he was banned from any future performances on that show, the Ed Sullivan show. It was, it was actually his first appearance on the show, and it would be his last. Just to offer some, uh, some background and past experiences, I can remember actually attending school with a number of people that would end up being involved in the industry, in the recording industry. Uh, some actually would become um, you know, producers, technicians, even some would end up being uh, celebrities, you know, right there center stage as performers who I knew through varying degrees of separation. And I would also, during this time period, become a DJ. Uh, making uh, recordings, you know, tapes and that, you know, with with uh, friends. And uh, we actually had formed a crew together and did a few parties. And uh, it didn't really grow beyond that point, you know, only because we had to pursue careers. You know, we were pretty much in our late, late teens, tweens, as they call it, and our early 20s, trying to figure out what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. So I've run in certain circles. My friends did as well. Um, you know, we knew people were classmates with other people. And I have one experience uh, of several, but I have one particular experience to share that's related to the release by Two Live Crew, which is also appearing on this list, on this song list. And well, the song is entitled We Want Some Pussy. At the time that that song uh, was released, or actually before it came out, I had the occasion of meeting someone who was related to uh, someone known in the industry as Uncle Luke, or Luke Skywalker, who was the leader, Luther Campbell. And we're only six, you know, about, what, five, six years apart in age. Anyway, I had an occasion to meet someone who was related to him during my stint in the military. This is someone else that was actually uh, stationed at the same base that I was, part of California, actually. Anyway, at that time, uh, I was still DJing. It was rather, I don't know, somewhat competitive then among people who knew how to mix and knew how to scratch and, you know, everything. And I used to travel down to the L.A. area to go, go out to, you know, hang with my friends, go out to events, go out to parties, go out to nightclubs and that. Frat dances at uh, UCLA, USC you know, other campuses, because I was, you know, of that age range, you know, the age between 18 and 21. And three years before, I actually had started uh, getting into nightclubs around the Southern California area. So just as they call it rap music, but just as the hip hop scene was, uh, you know, advancing, coming forward and becoming more prominent, um, you know, I was right there on the scene, going to different places, meeting people, you know, going to class with people that ended up, it would end up in the recording industry or that had something to do with it. So as the story goes, I had occasion to uh, run across somebody that had a uh, acetate vinyl record and they played it for me. That single was We Want Some Pussy. Now, it hadn't really dropped even underground at the time because time I don't recall even hearing it in any of the clubs that I, I had gone to. You know, this was again, hip hop was just emerging or coming to the forefront, it wasn't like it was today. It was still kind of in its infancy, more or less. I mean, I can remember seeing Ice-T at a club location in downtown Los Angeles when he was getting his start, you know, basically cutting his teeth, even, you know, breakdancing a little bit, which is what I partially did for a time. As early as, let's say, um, somewhere around spring, getting into the summer 1984, Los Angeles was preparing to host the Summer Olympics that year, and hip-hop was also burgeoning along with it. So there was a cultural burgeoning, a cultural influx and flow that was youth-driven as the way things are throughout history. 
The first recorded commercial rap song is largely understood to be King Tim III, a personality jock by the Fatback Band, which was released in 1979. The first smash hit in rap music as publicized would be Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, also released in 1979, which introduced a nationwide audience to this new genre. Despite the success of Rapper's Delight, Rap music did not consistently do well commercially until Run DMC released its first debut album in 1983. The earliest rap recordings in the 1980s were largely positive in tone, even as they explored and exposed the greedy conditions of life in the nation's urban ghettos. By the 1990s, this generation would be eclipsed by gangster rap. West Coast artists as Ice-T and N.W.A., related rugged and explicit stories of slum life, which often exaggerated gang violence and bravado. Much to the consternation of the American public outside the hip-hop community, gangster rap became and remains one of the most popular sub-genres of rap music. Just to offer some, uh, some background and past experiences, I can remember actually attending school with a number of people that would end up being involved in the industry, in the recording industry. Uh, some actually would become, um, you know, producers, technicians, even some would end up being uh, celebrities, you know, right there center stage as performers who I knew through varying degrees of separation. And I would also, during this time period, become a, a DJ. Uh, making uh, recordings, you know, tapes and that, you know, with, with uh, friends. And uh, we actually had formed a crew together and did a few parties. And uh, it didn't really grow beyond that point, you know, only because we had to pursue careers. You know, we were pretty much in our late, late teens, tweens, as they call it, and our early 20s, trying to figure out what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. So I've run in certain circles. My friends did as well. Um, you know, we knew people were classmates with other people. And I have one experience uh, of several, but I have one particular experience to share that's related to the release by Two Live Crew, which is also appearing on this list, on this song list. And well, the song is entitled We Want Some Pussy. At the time that that song uh, was released, or actually before it came out, I had the occasion of meeting someone who was related to uh, someone known in the industry as Uncle Luke, or Luke Skywalker, who was the leader, Luther Campbell. And we're only six, you know, about, what, five, six years apart in age. Anyway, I had an occasion to meet someone who was related to him during my stint in the military. There's someone else that was actually uh, stationed at the same base that I was, part of California, actually. Anyway, at that time, uh, I was still DJing. It was rather, I don't know, somewhat competitive then among people who knew how to mix and knew how to scratch and, you know, everything. And I used to travel down to the L.A. area to go, go out to, you know, hang with my friends, go out to events, go out to parties, go out to nightclubs and that. Frat dances at uh, UCLA, USC you know, other campuses, because I was, you know, of that age range, you know, the age between 18 and 21. And three years before, I actually had started uh, getting into nightclubs around the Southern California area. So just as they call it rap music, but just as the hip hop scene was, uh, you know, advancing, coming forward and becoming more prominent, um, you know, I was right there on the scene, going to different places, meeting people, you know, going to class with people that ended up, you know, would end up in the recording industry or that had something to do with it. So as the story goes, I had occasion to uh, run across somebody that had a uh, acetate vinyl record and they played it for me. That single was 
We want some pussy. Now, it hadn't really dropped even underground at the time, because time I don't recall even hearing it in any of the clubs that I, I had gone to. You know, this was, again, hip-hop was just emerging uh, or coming to the forefront. It wasn't like it was today. It was still kind of in its infancy, more or less. I mean, I can remember seeing Ice-T at a club location in downtown Los Angeles when he was getting his start, you know, basically cutting his teeth, even, you know, breakdancing a little bit, which is what I partially did for a time. As early as, let's say, um, somewhere around spring, getting into the summer 1984, Los Angeles was preparing to host the Summer Olympics that year, and hip-hop was also burgeoning along with it. So there was a cultural burgeoning, a cultural influx, and flow that was youth-driven as the way things are throughout history. As a Gen Xer growing up in an era and atmosphere rich in musical exposure and experiences, while having various records being hidden or my being forbidden from listening to certain recording artists and entertainers, uh, like a lot of people, I had to sneak to listen to Richard Pryor, Red Fox, and others on the comedic front. Music that was hidden from me from Parliament Funkadelic, Prince, groups like The Time, Vanity Six. I had posters up in my room of these different recording artists, but I was banned from listening to them. So it was a matter of appropriateness. You know, the main idea having to do with appropriateness, along with proper place and time, you know, because I wasn't of age yet. Talking about like as early as 15 years old, getting into nightclubs and, and uh, you know, soaking it all in. Besides, um, a lot of the records, they were adult records that were for consenting adults. Although, you know, talking about the comedians of the time and even before, with Red Fox's background in the industry, he would go on to have one of the most successful and famous sitcoms on television. The bodiness being reserved more for audiences as, at his club dates, like in Las Vegas and other places. Similarly for Richard Pryor, though, who would have to tone things down when he had a number of successful specials on mainstream television. As a student of life, I can recall there being various acts and recording artists from the past who stepped on the line or stepped to the line and some crossed it. Uh, not all of them were mainstreamed at the time and were somewhat exclusive. When I think of controversial music, I'm led to uh, Tipper Gore and the parental advisement labels that have become a part of our societal landscape and an optic that would impact commercial music in the way it's marketed. The Filthy 15 uh, were certain songs that were coined as being most harmful according to a censorship advocacy group called Parents Music Resource Center, PMRC, back in 1985. So in 1985, I wasn't even 20 yet uh, when this came out. And I'm also going to touch on uh, C. Dolores Tucker in just a bit. And, and again, just to illustrate the times then that were experienced as a consumer, things that affected free expression, commerce, and dealing with music. So starting at number one is Prince with Darling Nikki, which uh, featured sex and masturbation. Sheena Easton with Sugar Walls that pertained to sex. Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, Sex. Vanity, Strap On Robbie Baby, Sex, Motley Crue, Bastard, Violence, ACDC, Let Me Put My Love Into You, Sex, Twisted Sister, We're Not Gonna Take It, which advocated violence apparently, Madonna, Dress You Up, Sex, Wasp, W-A-S-P, Animal, Fuck Like a Beast, obviously sex, Def Leppard, High and Dry, Drug and Alcohol Use, Merciful Fate, Into the Coven, The Occult, Black Sabbath, Trashed, 
references to drug and alcohol use. Mary Jane Girls, In My House, featured sex. Venom, Possessed, Occult. Lastly, to round out the Filthy 15, Cindy Lopper, Shebop, Sex, and Masturbation. Music censorship interest group known as the Washington Wives, formed in 1985 by Tipper Gore, Susan Baker, Pam Hauer, Nancy Thurman, and Sally Nevius, without any scientific basis, ascribed multiple evils in society to be rooted in popular music, hence the PMRC-15. The RIAA, or Recording Industry Association of America, eventually added a parental advisory explicit lyrics label to certain products on products today. The RIAA didn't agree to the stickering of albums on moral grounds, but business ones. The industry had a huge financial interest in anti-home taping and piracy legislation. And guess who runs the committee that oversees this legislation? Senator Strom Thurmond, whose wife is a member of the PMRC. I think the connection's pretty clear. The record companies are willing to chop up artists' rights so that they won't have to lose any potential profits from their anti-home taping and pirating campaign. The recording industry is acting like a bunch of cowards. They're scared to death of the fundamentalist right and want to throw them a bone in hopes that they'll go away. But this stickering program will start a precedent. They'll always want more, end quote. That's by Frank Zappa, who was quoted in Parents Warn, Take the Sex and Shock Out of Rock, Los Angeles Times, August 25th, 1985. You know, I found an interesting read on Zappa in the book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and The Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream by David McGowan. By the 1990s, Tucker became a highly vocal opponent of the salacious lyrics and sexual innuendos associated with gangster rap. Calling the lyrics of many of these songs sleazy, pornographic smut, she joined Republican Bill Bennett in launching a national campaign against major music companies for supporting and sustaining artists profiting from rap music. Tucker picketed stores that sold rap music and bought stock in Sony, Time, Warner, and other major corporations to protest obnoxious lyrics at their shareholder meetings. In response, she often faced the wrath of these artists, including Tupac Shakur, KRS-One, Lil Wayne, and Lil' Kim, who attacked her in their songs. Tucker filed a $10 million defamation lawsuit against the estate of Tupac Shakur for the lyrics he used in his album, All Eyes on Me. Cynthia Dolores Tucker died on October 12, 2005, at a rehabilitation center in Norristown, Pennsylvania. She was 78 and was survived by her husband, William Tucker. The couple had no children. Rap. That's a rap. <laughs> so during this time period, within the span of roughly 25, 30 years or so, there were a number of songs that stood out to me, and I was of the age where I was a consumer and uh, who also played the music, 
a lot of the music that uh, I felt that I was drawn to. You have groups such as an artist, such as uh, AMG, Bitch Better Have My Money, which uh, projected materialism and objectified women in addition to the drug trade, making reference to hoes, hustling, getting money, which is, well, it's evident today. Of course, Too Short, Schoolie D, and Blowfly are those that are pretty much on my list. And I do have those in my collection and my personal collection cut. And I do have a number of such songs, you know, within my own personal collection. I also have them on this song list on the show today, which I think is, I don't know, a little bit um, ironic cut, which I feel is, is maybe a little bit ironic in a sense, but you know, it's all about it appropriateness. It's all about appropriateness and being a consenting adult and having access to this music and having certain things in mind. Not allowing the music to, you know, have or be of a full range influence to decision making and functioning in everyday life. So in conclusion, and I don't believe I've fully reached one yet. I mean, I'm I'm a parent of uh, a young cut. I'm a parent of a juvenile of a very impressionable age. And I don't really get flustered at the music today to the point where it's going to really influence them because I'm able to... Uh, more guide them along and you know it's understandable that a lot of this music paints a um, less than desirable picture of a pretty I guess somewhat exclusive or what was an exclusive segment of the American population and even globally it doesn't paint that broad picture of people and actually who we are the thing is we're all individuals with an ability to decide and understand certain references and how certain references are placed and also applying discernment you know and i just believe that cut i don't believe in censoring i don't believe in censorship but i do however know that the labeling that's placed on a lot of these works today a lay the labeling effort the fact that there's parental labels on a lot of the material i believe that actually was something beneficial than not i honestly believe that just having those alone, having those labels uh, was, is sufficient because there's a lot of material that the, um, the cut. Because there's a lot of material out there that's just not suitable for anyone under a certain age. It's just that simple. I don't agree in applying censorship to an art form. I don't believe in 
suppression of free speech. But here we are, you know, and you're always going to have people that are going to object to the manner in which people project themselves. That's just how it is. And I hope I've shown throughout time, throughout a particular time span, because the advent of popular music as we know it today, the structure of it, the way it's been produced, the way it's been cultivated for the masses, really started to occur around the 1950s around the 1950s and in the ensuing years. It's, a, it's somewhat evolved, but it's somewhat remained the same. You have people that are in positions and are considered disenfranchised from society at large. And they're going to want to speak out through music, which is fine. But there has to be ways of protecting you know, our youth, there has to be methods in protecting people who don't necessarily subscribe to certain behaviors that are considered degenerate, indecent, objective, correction, objectionable, or outright cut, or outright cut. Stand by. The implicit image of rap and violence became explicit with a number of incidents, including most notably the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G., two of rap's biggest stars. Many observers debated whether gangster rap caused or simply reflected the rising gang violence of the decade. Rap music continues to be controversial and draws a wide range of critics, both within and outside the African-American community. In 1990, the Miami, Florida rap group Two Live Crew was the focus of a widely publicized obscenity trial where critics urged censorship of their music because of its misogynist lyrics, while defenders, including Harvard University scholar Henry Louis Gates, argued before Judge Jose Gonzalez that the group had a right under the First Amendment to utter their lyrics no matter how offensive they might be to some. Judge Gonzalez ruled against Two Live Crew. Two years later, however, the Florida Court of Appeals overruled Judge Gonzalez. In 2003, conservative talk show host Bill O'Reilly initiated a nationwide protest campaign that was largely responsible for Pepsi ending a partnership with rapper Ludacris when O'Reilly questioned the rapper's lyrical content. Even if many Americans consider rapping and hip-hop culture detrimental to American culture at large, their complaints are largely lost upon a now nearly 30-year-old culture, now almost 40, which accepts rapping as a legitimate art form. Proponents of rap music point to its ongoing worldwide popularity and a slowly evolving recognition of the genre by music critics. Rap artists have won at least one award at the Grammy Award Show since 1989. In 2007, hip-hop pioneers Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were the first rap group elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, so during the 1980s, I had uh, considered the efforts uh, that would involve a few acts that a couple of them that were mentioned at the onset of the issues being raised as those who championed for First Amendment rights and, and including those who would become the focal point, more notably during the late 80s into the 
early 1990s, with N.W.A., Two Live Crew, Ice-T, and other acts in what would later become more commercialized as gangsta rap, who I believed were the springboard for this new genre that had been forming substantially. Now, I didn't necessarily like or promote um, a lot of the images that certain acts would portray, you know, mainly N.W.A., only because I wasn't fully part of that scene. Um, I wasn't directly involved, given how and where I grew up. During the 80s, I had considered the efforts that would involve a few acts at the onset of the issues being raised as those who championed for First Amendment rights, including those who had become the focal point, more notably commercialized as gangster rap, who I believed were the springboard for this new genre that had been forming substantially. I didn't necessarily like or promote some of the images, the subject matter and such that certain acts would portray, such as N.W.A., only because I wasn't part of that scene directly, given where I grew up and how I grew up, although it was something proximate to my existence. What I was more supportive of outside of the content itself was I was supportive that there was a stand taken for the advocacy of artists' rights to convey a message undeterred, unfettered, as spelled out by constitutional law. So in formatting this content and getting things together, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't go too long. So this is just the first installment and in the next part of this show regarding topics pertaining to uh, music censorship and objectionable content, uh, I plan on talking more about it and sharing some songs that actually uh, were considered somewhat inflammatory and indecent. I plan to go back further in time, going over some songs, not in, in a way of critiquing, but just experiencing, showing and reflecting on experiences and showing the atmosphere was like for me growing up as a child around certain songs and listening to certain songs and certain records. A number of them actually made me blush, believe it or not. You knew the parameters back then. You knew that these were adult records that you didn't necessarily listen to them. And at the same time, you could just go to a record store and get them right off the shelf without labeling. But even I remember going to the record shop sometimes, you know, most of the times I was with an adult thinking all this over and I want to be able to, uh, you know, piece things together, convey a message under all this underlying message somewhere. So I'm sure you can understand it. And it's from my position as a fan first of music and a parent and someone who is a Gen Xer that's grown up when, you know, rap music first started. I'm your host, B Noble, otherwise known as AD the DJ. And I'll come at you next time with more, sooner than later. The Must Be The Music Radio Vision Podcast.